As we are in this short series in the month of January, the Ask series, and we're answering life's tough questions, or maybe today's tough questions. Today's question is, who's next? Who's next? At a time where it seems like every week at least another name is coming forward of of some person who has done something awful and is being removed from their position of power or authority or responsibility because they have misused it. Who's next? How do we live in a sexually charged world? It's it's a, a tough question and and. Then this week and next week, I come to with a little bit of fear and trepidation myself because I have a fear that I will add to the fuel of the anger fire or that I will cause additional hurt and pain to people who have already been hurt and pained enough. And so it is with some caution that I approach this topic and nevertheless feel that it is crucial that the church be able to talk about these things, that we be able to discuss with one another these really hot topics and be able to sort through them in a reasonable way, in a way that helps us and encourages us and builds up uh, the church of Christ and builds up each person. And so um, as we do that, I want to um, recognize that while the, the trigger point, we call it sexual abuse, right? I, I want to recognize that, that sex is the context. It's the abuse, the abuse of power, the misuse of power and authority that is the problem. The context that is being so uh, blown up right now, not blown up out of proportion, I don't necessarily think, but is certainly on everyone's mind, is within this uh, arena of sexual ethics, but but the issue itself that we're talking about is an abuse of power. And I, I want to... to um, go to maybe the most famous in all of the scriptures of an example of that, and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, this is a rather long story. I'm not going to have these scriptures up uh, on the screen. If you want to turn to 2 Samuel 11 in your Bibles, you're you're welcome to. Otherwise, you can just listen as I read. And as soon as I start, many of you are going to be familiar with this story right away. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, is not this? And and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. 
When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And then when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among them. And the people fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed, this, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerub, Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone from on the wall that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger went and came to David and told him all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall and some of your king's servants are dead. And so is Uriah the Hittite. He is also dead. And David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We, we have heard this story many times. If you grew up in the church, you've, you've heard this story many times. And I, I've heard, you know, all kinds of things about this, about how, you know, David should have been out at war, but he was at home. And look at the contrast between Uriah and, and uh, David and how they handled themselves in this kind of a situation and, and all of these things. But what, what I think we um, sometimes miss is just... The grave disgustingness that is this episode. That, that David, the king, right? David, the great king. The one who replaced Saul because Saul was not being a good leader. 
So instead, this man who had the heart after God's own heart was put into power and he now, he's the one that the people rejoiced in. He loved the Lord. He wrote these Psalms. And yet this man is standing on top of his castle and looks down and sees this woman and says, that's what I want. Hey, somebody come here and tell me about this woman. Who is that? Oh, I'll tell you. Bring her to me. How does that happen? How does a person in power like that come to the point where they would so abuse their power and their authority that they would force whatever they want to have happen. And as soon as it comes out that she's pregnant, what did he think was going to happen? Nobody would ever find out about this? The king can just send for someone to come to him and no one is ever going to find out about this? Oh, but she's pregnant. I know what we'll do. We'll just fool Uriah. He'll have no idea. I mean... All of the steps of this for the cover-up is ridiculous. He calls Uriah home, makes up some reason that Uriah must come home, and then encourages him. Oh, you know what? As long as you're home, you might as well go see your wife. And when Uriah refuses, he goes, man, okay, maybe if I get you drunk... How inappropriate is this? The coercion, the, the, the premeditated thought to make all of these things happen. And stories like this are coming out on a weekly basis at least. And those are just the prominent figures. The actors, the directors, the high power people, the pastors... People in high-profile positions. It's coming up all the time. That they are doing this. And so finally, because David cannot figure out a way to coerce Uriah into doing what he wants him to do, he ends up just sending him off to death. So that when several people die, die in the crossfire, Uriah being one of them, David goes, oh, well, you know, that's what happens in war. And we're left at the end going, what? All of this happens and then David wins? All of this happens and then he takes Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. As his own wife. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I I want you to know, as as we are looking at this, and as we start thinking about, why is this? Where did this come from? That this... This is not supposed to be this way. The reaction that you get when you hear these stories and you read about the things that are happening or you hear about the things that are happening and you sort of get this reaction like, that that shouldn't be that way. Even when you read this kind of a story and you go, this shouldn't be this way. It's because, you know what? It shouldn't be that way. 
I know that uh, every week as we get to this point in the sermon, I go back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's because you have to go back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Every time you come up with, against a big question or a big issue, it almost always goes back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, it shows us how God created the world and intended it to be, and then what happened to break it. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God has been creating the world, and then it says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And behold, God said, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God created them, and if you're reading Genesis chapter 1, and how God says, you know what we need to do? We need to make mankind in our image. We need to make mankind in our image. All of these other things that we have made, we need to make mankind in our image, and we should give them authority and dominion and rule over everything else that we have made. And what does it say about them? So, in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis chapter 1 here, there is not really a distinction in the way that, that God treats man and woman. He puts them together and mankind together is supposed to be ruling over all of the rest of God's creation. There they are in harmony to rule over all of the rest of God's creation. And he looked at it. And saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so if that's the case, that man and woman were created in the image of God to be reigning and ruling over all of the rest of God's creation, what happened so that we end up with a story like David and Bathsheba? Well, in chapter 3, they took the fruit that they weren't supposed to take. They disobeyed the law and instruction of God. And in chapter 3, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In your pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And right there, we have this insertion that because of the fall, now there is a power struggle that wasn't there before. 
We have a power struggle that was never there before with the one struggling against the other and the other ruling over the one. And this wasn't that way from the beginning. It's part of the curse. And we see this as it, as it here, is here in the context of marriage. We see this in marriages all the time. This, the power struggle, right? You get two people together and then there's this, okay, who's going to uh, have the say of the way this goes today? Who, who's going to have the authority and the power in this area? Who's going to have the authority and the power in that area? And we end up with this, this fighting struggle. That's just even within marriage where you are covenanted before God lifelong to love one another. Now, we'll have a, a marriage class coming up uh, next month and we can handle all of those things. But, but if that's the case in marriage, how much more outside of marriage where you haven't had a covenant relationship with this other person, are there going to be these kinds of struggles? And so we see this kind of struggle all the time. And because we see this kind of struggle and we see this kind of pain, we hear these kinds of stories, especially right now. This is not new, right? These things, this has been happening for millennia. We, the, the same story has been playing out over and over and over and over and over again for a very long time. But right now, this is a really hot issue. And people have all kinds of ideas about what needs to be done. How can we fix this? How can we end this? We should punish them. We should punish them. If we just punish all of them, then this won't happen anymore. Punishment can be a good deterrent. It it can help. But how can you punish? For these kinds of offenses, how can you punish in a way that makes up for what they have done. How can you punish in a way that will restore the victims or bring them some sort of solace? And do we really think that people in great positions of power are concerned about the punishments? For many of these people, part of the reason that they got into it is they aren't concerned about the punishments. They think that they are above them. Certainly, David the king felt that way. He's the king of all of Israel. Who's going to question his authority? Who's going to bring an accusation against him? No, punishments can be a, a good deterrent, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't punish, but ultimately, that's not going to cut it as a solution. Maybe we could remove their power, remove them from the position of authority. And on a case-by-case basis, we can remove people from positions of, a, of power and authority so that they cannot repeat the offenses that they have committed. But anytime you get two people together, you're going to have a power disparity. Ultimately, we can't have nobody have any authority or power. And so there's always going to be this threat of an abuse of it, a misuse of it. 
What about education or awareness? If only we could just let people know how they ought to treat others, then it would be solved. We'll just get word out because probably the biggest problem here is that they don't understand how they ought to treat people. And so if we just tell them, you're not allowed to do that. You should treat people with respect and gentleness. Certainly they would do it. And for a few, it's helpful. For those who want to do what is right, that's helpful. To be told, look, this is what consent looks like. Oh, I never thought about that before. I would have liked to have been doing it right, but I just never thought about that before. One of the things that has come up for me, this is, granted, small, okay? Consensual hugging. Consensual hugging. I grew up in a family of huggers. We hugged everybody. I was, I was the hugger. In, growing up in youth group, I hugged everybody. Hugging was a thing that hugged. I mean, who doesn't like a hug? Everybody likes a hug. What could be more friendly than a hug? A handshake is nice, but it's really good. It's distant. You're over there. But we give hugs. And I became the pastor of a church, and I was a hugging kind of a pastor in a hugging kind of a church. And we gave out hugs. And then I had some uh, woman tell me one time, you know, I really don't like hugs. What? What do you mean you don't like hugs? Yeah, I'm not really a hugger. I didn't know there was such a person. You know what I found out as I started, as I started to realize there are non-hugging people in the world? I found out my sister is a non-hugging person. She's been tolerating hugs for years, but doesn't really like them. And I realized that because of my position, probably there are people who feel pressured into giving me a hug that don't want to give me a hug because they don't like hugs. And so probably what I should do is ask, would you like a hug? And allow them to have authority over their own body about whether or not they get a hug from me. Now, that's a a very small thing. And that kind of education for people is helpful. It opened my eyes. I didn't realize this. I was completely ignorant. But ultimately, we aren't going to educate everybody into behaving properly because there are people that that doesn't matter to them. The reasons that they are doing what they are doing is not because they don't know that what they're doing is wrong. It's because they don't care that it's wrong. So ultimately, even though education can help, it's not going to be our savior in this. So what can we do? How can we be as a church? What is our response when this kind of thing comes up? How do we respond as a church? And in this, um, I was looking at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, 
as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, who has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The church must first of all be a place that is pure. We, we ought to be a place that is pure and safe. A place where gentleness reigns, a, a place where love reigns. Look, look at the way this is describing Christ in verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is how we ought to love and treat one another with gentleness and respect. There ought to be no filthiness here. We ought to have a different level of standard within the church than without the, than outside of the church. And so let us start here. Let's start here and say, okay, we're not going to put up with that kind of stuff. I'm not going to put up with it from me. And I'm not going to put up with it in the church. If we see this kind of thing, we're going to bring it to light, right? Therefore, do not become partners of them. For at one time you were were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Walk as children of the light. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. Very often it seems to me that people feel like if we just cover this up, that will make things better. And David certainly thought, thought that. He, he, he he's recognized, oh, you know, um, there's a problem here with what I did with Bathsheba. Probably sh- people shouldn't find out about that. And he went to great lengths to try and cover this up, to hide it, to put it in the dark where no one would find out about it. And, and I find this over and over again that people go, you know, that it's the kind of thing that we probably just shouldn't talk about. It's the kind of thing that, that we, we just, we don't want that known. But verse 11 of Ephesians 5 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of, of darkness, but instead expose them. Bring them to the light. Well, once it's brought to the light, then we can deal with this, right? It can't be dealt with. It just, it just festers underneath. It's still there. It just hasn't been brought out yet. We, we, we have to be a safe place where, where these things can be brought to light so that the consequences can, can run their course. Right? So sometimes we feel like in the church, 
in the church, this is a place free of consequences. Or it should be, right? We all are sinners, saved by grace. There is forgiveness. And because of that, there shouldn't have to be any consequences for sin. But that's, that's not how that works. There are consequences for sin. Ultimately, yes, we recognize that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He paid the debt so that we can be reconciled to God. That doesn't mean that there are no consequences for sin. There are consequences. But those who understand their sin, those who have repented of their sin and experienced uh, freedom and forgiveness from Christ, also understand that they are responsible and can accept the consequences. If you're still trying to hide from the consequences of your sin, you may not fully appreciate the forgiveness that you have received in God yet. Because once we have, we can accept the consequences of our sin as they happen right now before us. Ephesians 5 continues on in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The the way that power and authority are uh, used in the church should be so radically different than the way that it's used in the rest of the world that it be, should be mind-blowing. Because we have Christ as our example, who came in the form of a servant that he might serve and love and care for, that, that Christ said, let the first become last and the last shall be first. Within the church, power and authority is turned on its head because all power and authority really means is you have the greatest responsibility. And so you become more of a servant rather than less. We we cannot use or think about power and authority within the church in the same way that, that we might exert it, that we might reign, that we might get something. Uh, Power and authority is not a way that you get things, but is a way that you serve and give things. The next thing that I think we need to do in the church is that we must not tolerate Gross sin. First Corinthians chapter five, verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? 
Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Those are harsh words. Those are harsh words against harsh sin. We we cannot tolerate sin in the church. It must be dealt with. And look at the way, though, that he finishes this. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the last thing that I think that we need to do as a church is we need to restore those whom we can to Christ. We need to restore those whom we can to Christ. Galatians chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, when you take this one and you put that together with the First Corinthians uh, 5, what you end up with is recognizing that I always want for this person to be restored to Christ. Whatever happens to them physically, whatever consequences they must bear here and now, whatever must come to light for that to happen so that they can be fully forgiven and fully restored to God, I want all of that to happen. I want to walk alongside them. I want to cast them out. I want to do whatever it takes so that the the community of God's people can be safe and pure And so that the members who are abusing their positions or who are in sin can have that dealt with so they can be reconciled with God. Ultimately, hopefully, they can be reconciled with God's people too. But first and foremost, we want whatever consequences need to happen to happen so that they can be restored to God. That's what we want. Let's see how this played out for David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember that David um, had committed this sin and had uh, covered the whole thing over and taken Uriah as uh, taken Uriah's wife Bathsheba as his own, but the Lord was not happy about that. Second uh, Samuel chapter twelve, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, "There were two men in a certain city. The one was rich and the other poor." The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the Son. Look at how God responds to this. He doesn't cover it up. He doesn't go, you know, it's over. He says, no, what you did in secret, we are going to do in public. And you will deal with this. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood by him and tried to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There were significant consequences for David. The, the Lord in his justice knew what he was doing with David. And we see what happened in David's heart. He repented. It, it, didn't, it didn't remove the consequences from him, but he repented and was restored. And when the consequences played out, he accepted them for what they were. The judgment of the Lord. And appropriate. Who knows if maybe the Lord may have been merciful, but 
This is from the Lord. And in all of this, we see David and we see what he had done. And we see what happened to Uriah. And we see what happened to Bathsheba. And we see what happened to the child. And somehow, God took all of that and through Bathsheba, David gives birth, or through Bathsheba, Solomon is born. And Solomon becomes the next king. And through that line, the Savior is born. So that the wife of Uriah the Hittite is in the genealogy of the Christ. And the shame that she otherwise would have been born is now redeemed to a great honor. That from her would come the next great king in Israel. And from her line would come the Savior. And ultimately, it is Jesus, that Savior, who will restore all things. Because unlike others who wield power and authority for their own gain, for their own self-gratification, Jesus uses His authority and power in a completely different way. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have all passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Ultimately, God has power and authority over everything. And he will use that to restore those who are broken. To heal and to exalt those who are down. And he will use it to execute final judgment over those who have deserved it. He is faithful to do that. In a world where power is abused for self-gratification, we must show honor to everybody. We must help the weak. We must bring sin to light. We must restore the repentant. 
And we must trust that God will hold the guilty accountable. And that must begin in the church. Amongst God's people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray. Father, ultimately our hope is that you will restore all things to perfect peace through your power and authority. And in the meantime, as we see the brokenness of our world, Father, help us. Help us to use the power and authority and positions that we may have with gentleness and humility and respect. Help us to lift up those who are broken. Those who have been afflicted. Those who have been outcast. Those who have been shamed. Lord, we pray for those. Those who are among us, those who are in our community, those whom we have been near to, that we may have hurt. Father, I pray that there might be reconciliation and forgiveness. Father, we pray for those who have been broken, that you would heal them. We pray for those who have abused positions of a power and authority that they might repent and be restored to relationship with you. And Father, we recognize that ultimately there is no hope in this world of these things happening apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask for that now. In Jesus' name, amen.